Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here uh, this morning. Hope you had a great week. Uh, it certainly was uh, an eventful week, of course, in, uh, in, the, in our nation and in our country this past week. Uh, in 20 years of preaching, I can count really on one hand, maybe more than just one hand, maybe almost two hands, uh, the amount of times that I've gotten to the end of a week and into the weekend and completely scrapped my sermon and started over to write a new sermon for the weekend. Uh, this was one of those weeks. I woke up on Friday morning and uh, I got my coffee. I turned on the TV just to catch up on a little bit of news that morning. And uh, everything changed. Everything changed for the week. Everything changed in a lot of different ways. And so, as I'm sure you know by now, on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court voted to uh, strike down uh, Roe v. Wade. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here this morning. Uh, Let me just say on the outset, though, uh, as we approach this this morning, this is not going to be about us spiking a political football in the end zone. Um, It's not going to be about us, you know, necessarily even calling out abortion. We're just going to be talking today about how it is that God wants us to respond in this very important moment, recognizing that this is a pivotal moment uh, in American history. It's also a pivotal moment in the American church at the same time. And we believe in a God of the Bible who is a personal God, a God who cares about his creation, a God who cares about what happens in human history, and a God who cares about how that affects people. Uh, We believe in a God who has a plan and a purpose and a mission for his church. And we believe in a God who speaks to us and directs us according to those lines. And so as we approach it this morning, we're going to be talking about looking into God's word and hearing what he has to say, what we believe he has to say for us uh, going forward. And I think although uh, we, the reality is that no one knows for sure the result, what the end results will be of the decision that was made this past week, uh, I will say that I think to the, to the, to the extent that the impact of this decision uh, protects lives of the unborn, and causes human flourishing, the, the human, human flourishing, the lives of human flourishing here uh, in our country, it's a really good thing. And so let's be praying together as we do. Let's pray now. I want to seek God. I know that there are a lot of uh, emotions and, and probably different feelings about this, depending on um, who we are, where we come from. If you're joining us online or if you're here in this room, I know that there are a lot of different feelings about this. But at the same time, what I want to pray for us about in the morning is, is, is hearing God's voice clearly amongst all the emotions, amongst all the kind of confusion, amongst all the speculation of what might happen, that we would hear God's voice clearly as we turn to his word this morning. So would you join me in praying? Lord, we do ask you this morning that amidst all, uh, this is obviously an emotional thing for many of us, and it's an emotional thing throughout our country. There are different perspectives. There are different opinions on this. Um, throughout our country, there may even be different opinions and perspectives in this room or among those who are joining us online. Lord, we want this morning to hear from you. We pray that you would quiet the distractions. Lord, you would quiet um, the, the speculations and the other things that are on our minds this morning and that we would be able to hear clearly from you, trusting that you speak to us as a personal God who has a plan for your church who has a way that you want to be realized and seen and understood and presented in this world through your church. And Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to be faithful in following your calling to us, Lord, and your calling through our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in all this talk about politics, I think it's important to remember that the Bible presents to us a politic known as the kingdom of God. And a big part of what we've been going through in this series and the parables of Jesus is looking at this central message of the kingdom of God. We talked about the fact that when Jesus is presenting the parables to us in the Gospels, what he's presenting to us is this reality of a kingdom of God that he inaugurated with his first coming and that he announced with his first coming and the invitation to live in and from that kingdom. And of course, that kingdom itself has a politic that comes with it. And these parables invite us then, in a very real sense, to kind of engage in a political core, if you will, about what the kingdom is all about. And so when we read these, par- when we read these parables, I think what we see is at their core, they are actually political, not necessarily in the way that we might consider politics in the world today, understand politics as left-right, but understanding politics as a governing way of bringing us together in community under the rulership and the leadership of Jesus Christ. And as we talk about this, what we're understanding is what it means for us to live out a kingdom politic in the world around us. So how would we define that politic? 
I mean, is there a constitution that we can go to? Is there a constitution of the kingdom of God? I think there actually is. In Matthew chapter 22, um, Jesus is asked this question. He's asked a question by one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders. What is the first and greatest commandment? In other words, what is the constitution, so to speak? What is the primary objective of this kingdom that you're talking about? What is its primary values? And Jesus responds in this way. It says in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now this engagement that happens here with Jesus and one of the Pharisees has all kinds of really political overtones to it. All the way down to the fact that the way that it starts is by the lawyer or the Pharisee asking Jesus kind of a gotcha question, right? That's what they call, that's what they call these kinds of questions in politics. Where you're trying to confront somebody or trap them with a question in a public setting to try to discredit him. That's exactly what this Pharisee is doing. And as the Pharisee asks the, the gotcha question, Jesus instead responds. He understands what he's doing, but instead he responds with his platform, if you will. If you want to know what my kingdom looks like, here is what my kingdom looks like. What it means to live in the kingdom and from the kingdom is to love God with all that you are, all that you have, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then notice Jesus ties this back to the Old Testament. He even says, all the law and the prophets hang on these things. In other words, from the very beginning, this has always been what it means to live as a part of the kingdom of God. This has always been God's politics, if you will. To love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think this is critical to realize when it comes to living out kingdom of God politics in our world. Because kingdom of God politics are always defined by these two commands. Call it what you will, if you want to call it the platform of Jesus, if you want to call it the constitution of the kingdom of God, whatever you want to call it, this is what it means to live in the kingdom. All of which brings us to today's parable, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, originally, we were supposed to do the parable of the prodigal son. We switched that one. We'll do that one a little bit later in this series. But we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I would say, other than the parable of the prodigal son, this is probably one of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught in the Gospels. It's also one of those parables, just like the parable, I mean, the parable of the prodigal son is kind of on its own level as far as the mastery of Jesus telling a story, how awesome and amazing of a storyteller Jesus is really comes through in the layers of that story and all of its applications. But this one is kind of right up there with it. It's right behind that one, I would say especially when we consider where this, con where this comes from. In other words, how Je why Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan in this moment. A lot of it has to do with the setup and, and how he's prompted in this way. We're going to see in this scene from Luke chapter t uh, 10 where the parable is recorded, the scene that leads up to the response here and why Jesus responds the way that he does. But I think what we see is how genius this is in, in terms of how Jesus simply states what it means to be a part of the kingdom, what it means to live out the kingdom, and then how comprehensive this is, how many layers and applications this might have to it as we live it out. And so I'm sure you are all familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's probably not going to be the first time that you've heard it. But I would encourage you, um, despite how familiar you may be with it, don't allow that to get in the way of a fresh and relevant teaching for us today, as far as especially what it means to understand this for our moment right now. And we're going to take this in two parts. The first part we're going to look at is what sets up the question. In other words, the setting to this, how, or what sets up the parable. The setting to this, the question that sets it up, and that kind of thing. And then the second part we'll look at is actually the telling of the parable. Okay? So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we find the scene as it sets up. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Well, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the Pharisee, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Now Luke, Luke describes for us a scene where, a lot like the Matthew passage that we just looked at earlier, a Pharisee who is described as a lawyer, and by the way, a lawyer just means uh, a subset of the Pharisees, and so there were different Pharisees who did different things. A lawyer or an expert of the law, which some translations might say, uh, is, was somebody who was basically a scholar. He was a scribe, somebody who was focused on basically interpreting and understanding the law. It was his job to be an expert in God's word, an expert in particular in the Mosaic law. And so I'm going to just say Pharisee from here on out because lawyer has different connotations for us. An expert of the law is just too cumbersome to say like 50 times, like I'm going to say it the rest of the service. So, so Pharisee is what we'll refer to this guy as because he is a Pharisee. But as he comes to Jesus, right, he comes to him again with a gotcha question. Luke even tells us he's trying to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus recognizes this right away. He understands that the lawyer's not coming to him with a genuine question, genuinely asking for a response and an answer. Of course, he's trying to trap Jesus into, uh, into a gotcha question. And Luke makes this guy's intent clear here. We see that he's not asking the question because he genuinely wants to know. But Jesus knows and Jesus recognizes. And so the way that he responds is by turning the question back to the Pharisee. He says, well, you tell me. You're an expert in the law, right? You're a lawyer. You're a Pharisee. You're a scribe who focuses on the law. You know it inside and out. You tell me. What does the law say about what it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God, to live from the kingdom of God? And the Pharisee gives the right answer. Of course, he quotes what is known as the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. What Jesus quoted earlier is the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus says, you're correct. Go and live that way. But the Pharisee's not done yet. And you can imagine Jesus might be turning away to go to the crowds. And the Pharisee says, well, hold on. I've got one more question for you. Who is my neighbor then? Now, we're given a little bit of a window by Luke into why he would ask this question, but context actually helps us understand this a little bit more. Luke says he asked this question to justify himself. Now, here's the key point in all this. Religious leaders like this Pharisee were teaching the people at the time that your neighbor only applies to fellow Israelites. In other words, they put a limitation on what the identity of the neighbor was. And so he's trying to justify his teaching. For whatever reason, he probably understood that Jesus' application or understanding of a neighbor was more broadly defined than what his was. But for the Pharisees, they said, essentially, there are neighbors and non-neighbors when it comes to this law and following this law. The neighbors are fellow Israelites, and maybe even some God-fearing, believing Gentiles who may be a part of the worship assembly. But sinners, Gentiles outside of the assembly, Samaritans, Greeks, Romans, all of those, they're all non-neighbors. We're not bound by loving them in the same way that we've been commanded to love our fellow Israelites. And so Jesus understands exactly what's going on here. He responds, and he engages the man again in this public debate. And the man asks in the end, okay, so who is my neighbor? And the response to that question is what leads into the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we're going to look at here in verse 30. Jesus replied to the question of who is my neighbor by saying this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now he went to him and bound up his, his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out a two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when, you, when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the Pharisee responded, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now the parable that Jesus tells in response to this question about who is my neighbor is a story about a man who goes from the city of Jerusalem down to Jericho. 
Now, this was an infamous road. It was an infamous journey that everybody in the audience and the crowd would have understood immediately the reference because it was notoriously a difficult stretch or a dangerous stretch of about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was dangerous because it was lined by caves where robbers and thieves and criminals would often hide, and they would attack those who they felt like they wanted to attack and rob quite often on that road. So it was a dangerous place to be in the first place. But as, as Jesus mentions this, uh, the, the, the man in the story faces the worst of it all. He's beaten, he's robbed, he's stripped of his clothing, and he's left dead on the side of the road. In fact, he's beaten so badly that he's essentially immobilized. And there's nothing that he can do to save himself. He's on the side of the road, and if somebody doesn't come quick to save him and provide the care that he needs, he's going to die right there on the side of the road. So he's left in a completely helpless state. He's in pain physically. On top of that, he's been humiliated. He's stripped naked on the side of the road. He's been robbed. I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen for you. You've ever been robbed. You've had your car broken into, but it is a it's a mentally difficult thing to deal with, right? You feel violated. So he's violated. He's completely shattered, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. He's completely shattered sitting on the side of the laying on the side of the road, essentially waiting for death. But as he's lying there waiting to die, he looks up and sees a priest. And I'd imagine in that moment, of course this is a fictitious story, but I would imagine in that moment that he would look up and and think to himself, here's a man of God. God has sent me a priest. This is a righteous man. A man who knows the law and knows that he's supposed to love and take care of his neighbor. If there's any, any more prime example of what it means to love your neighbor, I don't know what it is. And so he's thinking to himself, God has sent me this miracle, this priest who will help me. As the priest walks down the street, he's down the road, he notices the man on the side of the road, crosses over to the other side of the road to avoid him, almost like he's not there, and essentially leaves him for dead. At that point, as the priest leaves the man there, a few minutes later, some time later, a Levite comes down that same road. Again, the man might be thinking, well, here's another chance. Maybe the priest was too busy Right? There was a law at the time in the Mosaic law that if a priest touched a dead body, he was unclean for seven days and couldn't do his, his, temple, his temple rites. And so maybe the priest just avoided that because he thought it was a dead body and he didn't want to touch it. But the man's thinking to himself, a Levite. A Levite's not as busy. Right? A Levite's not subject to the same restrictions under the law. And so surely this is the guy who's going to come help me. The same thing happens with the Levite. He sees the man on the ground, walks to the other side of the road, pretends like he's not even there, like he doesn't see him. It's not his issue, it's not his problem, and he leaves the man for dead. At that point, the man had to be thinking, that was it, right? That's it. A priest and a Levite. God's servants in the temple, if they won't help me, no one will. And just as he was coming to terms with the fact that he would probably die on the side of the road right there, the most unlikeliest of heroes comes to the rescue. A man that Jesus just simply identifies as a Samaritan. And in actuality, that's all Jesus needed to do was just say the word Samaritan to this Jewish audience. Because in the Jewish audience, those who were listening to him, including the crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders in that moment, the word Samaritan to a Jewish audience would have been to describe a man who would have been instantly identified as the bad guy in the story. In fact, it was much more likely that the Samaritan would be the one who beat up the man as a criminal than that he would be the one who would be the hero that would save him in the end, according to Jewish thinking. There's a lot more that could be said about how the Jewish people hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them as well. It went back centuries and generations at this point. But I think we can think about it almost like a a modern day comparison would be kind of like uh, Jews and uh, Palestinians right now, right? The hatred goes back generations and centuries. And so for Jesus to say the Samaritan is the one who's the hero of the story, the Samaritan is the one who shows care and concern was hugely scandalous, but he's not done there, but he's not done yet. He says that the Samaritan stops to save this man's life, and he does it so completely and at such a significant cost to himself that it actually raises the bar of of what it means to love our neighbor in the first place. Notice that Jesus details everything that he does. He first spends time cleaning out the wounds, which at this point had to be full of dirt and mud and he uses oil and wine to clean him up and to, and, and, to, and to put ointment over his wounds, to dress his wounds. And then he bandages him and puts the man on his donkey 
to take him away. Now here's the thing. It's one thing to travel down that dangerous road on a donkey on your own. You might have a chance at avoiding criminals and thieves who might chase after you. But to put but to, but to get off your donkey and to walk alongside with an injured man on your donkey was to make yourself a target of the exact same thing that this man just experienced. So what this man, what the Samaritan is doing is he's stepping right into the same danger that has just been inflicted on this man that he is caring for. But that's not all he does. He walks the man all the way to an inn and he checks him in. And he says to the innkeeper, here's the money to pay for a couple of days, or whatever it takes, the next few days, for this man to recover and to rest. And let him stay here as long as he needs to, to recover. And I'm going to come back and I'll pay you for every day that he has stayed from now until then, everything that he would owe you for staying here. I'm going to take care of it. And I'll be back to check on him. Now, look, think about it this way. If this man, the Samaritan, would have just taken the man to the inn and dropped him off and said, okay, I found this guy on the road. Will you take care of him now? I'm sure you can talk to his family about reimbursing, you know, all the costs and that kind of thing, but I wanted to make sure that he was safe. He would have done, he would have fulfilled the law to love his neighbor. In fact, he would have done probably even more than he should have in that case. He would have saved this man's life. He would have provided an opportunity for him to recover and all the rest. Put himself in danger Instead, and this is where the parable seems to take it up a notch from just fulfilling the law and actually loving our neighbor. He leaves the innkeeper with money to pay, and then he says, I'm going to take care of him all the way until he fully is restored and fully recovers. In other words, he goes the distance with the man until he is completely restored. Take note of that point. It's important. We're going to get back to it in just a minute. But as Jesus finishes telling the parable, he turns to the Pharisee and then asks him, okay, who do you think was a neighbor to this man? Now, at this point, for the Pharisee, it's undeniable. Right? It's obvious it was the Samaritan. He still Notice that he still can't even bring himself to say, though, it was the Samaritan. He can't even say the word Samaritan. That's how much the Jews despised Samaritans. Instead, he just says, well, the one who showed him mercy. And as the crowds are listening to what's going on here, and as the Pharisee answers that question, and as the conversation ends right there, I can imagine in some ways there might have been at least a couple moments of complete silence. <laughs> people were astounded at what Jesus has just said. You could probably, even, even with the crowds of people around in this place, you could probably hear a pin drop in that moment. Because they would have been shocked about a couple of things. First of all, this whole redefinition of what it means to be a neighbor, and the Samaritan being the one who was the hero, but also the degree to which Jesus talks about what it means to love our neighbor. It would have been different than anything else they would have understood or considered. What this parable teaches us, then, is a couple of things as we bring it to our, our, our current setting about this all-important politic of loving our neighbor. When it comes to loving our neighbor, the teaching of this parable makes two things clear. Who we are to love and how we are to love them. Both are a part of this command to love our neighbor as ourselves. They're integrated. You can't separate them. They're both a part of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who we love and how we love them. First, let's talk about how this shows us who we are to love. The simple answer, of course, is everybody. <laughs> right? A big part of this parable is the fact that Jesus, says, that Jesus eliminates those barriers and loopholes to not loving, to, to redefining who your neighbor is. Jesus essentially says very clearly, every person is your neighbor. There are no exceptions or clauses to get out of this. But I want you to notice something here that is really important. In the contrast between the questions that bookend this parable, we're actually told something a little bit more about what it means to answer that question, who do I love? The first question is the question that the Pharisee asks Jesus. Of course, he says, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable in response, but then Jesus asks a question at the end of the parable back to the Pharisee. And he says, who was a neighbor to the man? Now I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that, uh, that although this, this, the difference in those questions is really subtle, it's very important. 
Because the question from the Pharisee is about, okay, who do I have to love? And as long as that's the question, it remains a law that I have to follow. And there are possible exceptions, possible ways out, possible loopholes in that law. By contrast, the, the Samaritan acted because he wasn't worried about who is my neighbor. Instead, he became a neighbor to the man. You understand? So, so when Jesus turns back onto the Pharisee at the end, he says, who was a neighbor to that man? Notice the difference here. Do you see that one, of, one is about assessing others and whether they warrant your care. The other is about being a certain kind of person to everyone. The difference is, is between legalism and transformation. The difference is, is between religion and new creation. The difference is between living out the standards of this world and living from the kingdom of God. Because the question is not even, who am I to love? The question instead is, are you a neighbor? The kingdom changes us into new people, new creations. We become neighbors. We don't become people who are asking, who is my neighbor? We become a true neighbor. If that's who you are, there is not a person you know or come into contact with who is not your neighbor to love because they're all created in the image of God. That's why this is so important. And since that answers the question then of who we are to love, how about the question of how we are to love? What, is this actually, what does this actually look like? Well, I think this brings us to the heart of the parable. There's a key word that Jesus uses to describe the reaction that the Samaritan has to this. And, it, and it's the first thing that happens that launches all of the active care that the Samaritan then provides for the man who is injured. It's in verse 33, and it's the word compassion. You may know that the word compassion means to suffer with. And in fact, the context of this and the force of this is, is, is so deep and so moving that it actually communicates a feeling of, of being moved from the inside, an emotional feeling that moves you from the inside, almost to the sense that there's like a burning in your gut. We've all felt those strong sensations before, right? Whether we're scared or excited or concerned or in love, where we feel a sensation in our gut. This is what is being described here. To suffer with someone that comes from a place of compassion and care that literally burns within your gut. And compassion, then, is what turns the heart of the Samaritan into action. And compassion is the key response that he has here. And I think Jesus is, is, is highlighting this as the key response that we're to have as well. It comes from compassion. It comes from an ability to suffer with those whom we are to care for and to love. This is really what the parable demands as a kingdom of God response. And it's interesting that when you think about how Jesus phrases, of course, the greatest command, of course, he's quoting from the Shema, from the Old Testament. But he says to love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say just love your neighbor. He says love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a descriptive, a descriptive qualification that he's attaching to what it means to love your neighbor. Jesus understood this. Uh, we know this, right? Love can be defined in a million different ways. During Jesus' time, the Greeks had four different words that described what love meant, depending on the context. During our time, we've got a thousand different ways we use the word love. Jesus is qualifying and defining it by saying we're to love in the way that we love ourselves. What that means, essentially, is this is about compassion, suffering with, the kind of love that puts yourself in the, in, in, in the same shoes as someone else. He is saying in order to fulfill the law of love in the kingdom of God, to fulfill the politic of the kingdom of God, you are to do everything you can to put yourself in the position of the person you are loving and the person you're caring for. Now, why would Jesus call us to this kind of love? Is it too extreme? I think it's exactly, it's because it's exactly the kind of love that he shows us. He shows us compassionate love. The kind of love that steps into our world the kind of love that dwells with us, the kind of love that takes our sin and our burden to the cross. He takes our burden and goes the distance so that we can be restored. In a lot of ways, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan behind this parable. He is the neighbor. He is the good neighbor. And because he is the good neighbor, he calls us to be neighbors as a part of his body as well. Galatians 6 
2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what Paul's saying there in Galatians? He's saying this is the politic of the kingdom of God. Compassionate love that bears another one's burdens and treats them like, they, like their burdens are your own burdens. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that's all well and good, but how do we actually do it? How do we live that out in a practical way? Especially because you could look around in our world and say the needs are everywhere. I mean, even if that's that man on the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan just represented the most vulnerable and needy among us, that list gets really long really quickly. The unborn, single mothers, orphans, foster children, the poor, special needs children, victims of abuse, victims of sex trafficking, and on and on and on. That's just to name several. On top of that, we may know that issues like poverty and abortion and injustice and abuse are complex issues. There isn't just always one magic bullet to solving those things. So poverty is not solved by just giving a couple of bucks to the guy on the street corner. But does that mean that you shouldn't give to the poor? The issues can be overwhelming. But does that mean we should just throw up our hands and say, well, the problem's too big what good will it do for me to do anything anyways? It's just a drop in the bucket. Of course not. We're called to use our discernment, and most importantly, to follow the promptings and leadership of the Holy Spirit to live this way as a neighbor in this world so that we become neighbors in, the, in terms of everybody that we come into contact with as created in the image of God, then experiences what it means to be loved by a neighbor, a true neighbor in the kingdom. This is what it means to bring the kingdom into the world, shalom into the world. Now, in speaking of all these generalities, at the same time, I would say this. There are certain moments and callings that become more urgent and obvious for the church at certain times and in certain settings. And in light of, and I believe that one of those things happened this past week, that in light of the overturning of Roe versus Wade this past week, I believe that as the American church, we find ourselves in one of those moments right now. And I want to finish with the rest of the time talking about how, what it means to be a neighbor in the moment we find ourselves in, in this post-Roe setting. Now, first of all, we should be thankful, I believe, for those who have fought to protect the unborn and who will continue to do so as we go forward. But hopefully we also realize that abortion is a much more complicated decision than just a mother deciding she didn't want her baby to be born. There are often underlying issues that lead to unwanted pregnancies that relate to everything from poverty and social issues to human trafficking, sexual abuse, sexual ideologies, and the lack of present and engaged fathers. In light of that, how do we then answer the call to be a neighbor in the world in the new moment that we're in? Let's go back and use the example of the Good Samaritan. First, I believe we need to look and listen. We need to have compassion. And in order to have compassion, we need to see and to hear those whom we need to help. We need to be willing to look and to listen. If we're really for the flourishing of people created in the image of God, then we are for babies and families and mothers. And we cannot ignore the fact that the underlying factors lead some mothers to a place where they believe that abortion is their only option. In a recent survey of 1,000 post-abortive women, 76%, that's 76 out of 100, 760 out of 1,000, 3 out of 4, said they would have preferred to have their baby, but they believed that their circumstances did not allow them to do so, so they had an abortion. We can't ignore the fact that if we are pro-life, we need to create situations where abortion is not the only option. We can't be the religious guy, in other words, who walks to the other side of the road, pretends like we don't see the problem in front of us and say, that's not my problem. While the most vulnerable among us are on the side of the road calling for help. Compassion compels us to suffer with those who suffer so that we can help in whatever way we can. Secondly, we're to incarnate. Incarnate is kind of a fancy word that means just be there and do something. 
The second thing we need to do is actually do something to help the situation. Look, as the Good Samaritan showed, real compassion leads to action. I mean, imagine this scenario. If he'd walked up to the man who was laying on the side of the road and said, man, I am so sorry that this happened to you. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to pray for your family, and I'm going to give money to whatever organization is going to help make this road safer so what happened to you will never happen to anyone again. And he just walked away. How does that, I mean, that's great, that's well-intentioned, but how does that help the man lying on the side of the road dying in front of you? The only thing that would save his life is direct help and action, and that's what the Samaritan does. To incarnate means to enter someone's world. It means to see the image of God in a person and be a neighbor to them, to move into their neighborhood, so to speak. Or maybe move into their neighborhood literally and keep pressing until you begin to fill the burdens, the weight of their burdens as your very own burdens. That's the call to compassion and fulfilling the law of Christ. It's important, now I think at this point it's important to recognize, look, the church's current involvement in helping with solutions for unwanted pregnancies is substantial. There's a lot to celebrate in that that vein. You don't have to look much further than our own church here at North. We have several families who are involved in uh, adoption and fostering. We have a partnership with Hope House, which is a crisis pregnancy center, one of our main uh, partnerships through our mission, mission ministry. And it's not only here at North. According to a recent study on philanthropy in America, they found that Christians in America are three times more likely to adopt than the general public. So look, we have a lot to be thankful for there. We have a lot to celebrate. But this isn't a time to pat ourselves on the back and be complacent, especially in the moment that we're in. I said earlier that we don't know the exact long-term effects of overturning Roe v. Wade. I do think, though, it's reasonable to conclude that there will be less abortions. And that means that there will be more babies being born, which is great. That means that there will be more babies being born into the world with the image of God on them, which is something we should celebrate. It also means there will be more babies born into poverty and into broken families. But thank God that they're being born. It means that we'll have more babies with special needs, but thank God that they are being born. All of these, though, provide opportunities for the church to step up. For more Christians than ever to step into helping with things like adoption and foster care and respite care, to help with families who are in crisis mode or in crisis situations where they're trying to keep their families together so that they can keep their children and keep their babies or so that they don't have to feel like abortion is their only option. All of which brings us to this this third step, the long-term goal of compassionate response. Go the distance. As I said earlier, what makes this example of the Good Samaritan so remarkable, so otherworldly, so amazingly gracious, is that the Samaritan becomes a, new, uh, becomes a neighbor to the man to the degree that he goes the distance all the way until he is restored. He pays for all the nights at the inn. He comes back to make sure that there is restoration in the inn. He makes that man, he, ma- he becomes a neighbor to that man, not just in terms of doing a good deed that he checked off his list that made him feel better, but he joined his life with that man until it was restored and until he was healthy again. Joined his life with that man. You know, things like legislating abortion and providing adoption and foster care are important for the protection of children and the unborn who are the most vulnerable among us. However, I think we also know this. As essential as those actions are, they are largely reactionary measures. Wouldn't it be great if we could be more proactive rather than just reactive? In general, the only thing better then finding a child a great foster home is providing a great home for that child with his or her biological parents. And yes, these kind of measures are big. They're difficult. They're complex to figure out. And when it comes to this issue, again, we're dealing with poverty and abuse and social issues and education and those kinds of things, permissive sexual ideologies, absentee fathers. But look, here's the thing. We don't need to fix it all. What we do need to do is be is, is, is do what we can for one vulnerable person, one vulnerable family, one vulnerable neighborhood at a time. 
Thabiti Anyabule, who is a, a pastor in Washington, D.C., uh, reacted on Friday through Twitter uh, to uh, the ruling um, on Friday, Roe versus Wade ruling, and he was talking about what it meant for the church in America to carry the work forward. And I want to read a part of this because I think it's really instructive and helpful along these lines. He says this, By carry the work forward, I mean the work not just to forbid abortion, but to create conditions for women that help them escape the dreadful situation altogether. We must advance pro-abundant life ethic that saves babies, serves mothers, and supports fatherhood. Now look, that's obviously a huge calling, as we've said a couple times already. But we aren't doing this alone. Look, if this is God's moment to wake up the church to something more, to call us forward to redefine his mission in this way for the American church, which I believe it is, which Pastor Anya Boule does and many other Uh, American church leaders are coming to terms with, then God is going to provide a direction for us. God is going to do this. God is going to direct us. We just need to be ready to follow as the body of Christ. Um, Several years ago, uh, many of you may be familiar with David Platt. Uh, He wrote the book Radical. He's a well-known pastor anyway. He was pastoring a church several years ago in Alabama by the name of Brook Hills Church, Birmingham, Alabama, in Shelby County. And one week he decided to call the county and ask them, how many children do you have right now in the foster care and adoptive system that are looking for a home? And, and the lady was kind of taken off guard. And she said, well, I've got about 150. And he said, okay, how many families would it take to take care of those children? He said, well, somewhere around that number, 150 families. He went back to his church, and he told them about his conversation with the county, and he challenged them to respond. They had 160 families sign up for adoption and foster care, completely cleared out the role of the foster and adoptive roles in the, in the county, in Shelby County, Alabama, several years ago. Look, here's the thing. We can't do it all but we can do what we've been called to do with the power of God and with a willingness to follow where he leads. And so as a church, we're going to make steps in this direction. Several several weeks ago, I should say, even before the decision of this past week, uh, Pastor Wes and I began meeting with a local ministry organization that provides family care throughout the Phoenix metro area, providing things like foster care and adoptive services, as well as education, respite services. They also do Uh, some work with families who are in crisis throughout our city to help them maintain and stay together as a family so that they can keep their children with biological parents. And what they do is they partner with churches to to help churches do this work, but also to educate churches on how to get involved. And you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not a foster parent, I'm not, I'm not, I can't adopt, I'm not in that position. But there are plenty of ways that you can get involved. And so we're talking with organizations like this, we're going to begin to, to, to take steps closer into this as far as moving forward. And our goal is by the fall, we're going to start uh, to invite organizations or representatives from those organizations onto our church campus to give us more information about how we can be a part of that, how every person can play a role in ministering to these families in need in our city. We're also going to, of course, continue to support Hope House, and I would expect that our, that our involvement and our, and our, um, and our contribution are, uh, would, would expand in this way because Hope House, like other crisis pregnancy centers, are going to have to expand their ability to reach more families and reach more children. I would also say that it's wise for us, and the mission committee doesn't know this yet, but here we go, for us to continue to look for more local crisis pregnancy centers to be involved with and to help out with in whatever way we can because they're going to feel the burden and they'll feel the weight for the next months and years to come. And all that being said, I think the biggest thing for all of us is that we have to be committed to being listeners and learners as we go forward, to continue to dialogue as we understand how these things might, op- might, might affect people in our communities, might affect families in our communities, and to learn how those needs are changing and shifting and to 
Use discernment in meeting those needs. Um, my undergrad degree is in public policy and law, and one of the things I remember them always, I don't remember everything they taught me, but one of the things I do remember them saying over and over again is that policies always have unintended consequences. You make policies and you make laws and you think they're going to do this, and they affect people different ways from different backgrounds and different places in society in ways that you never anticipated. And so we need to continue to listen and to learn from others. And that doesn't mean that we check our convictions at the door. What it does mean is that we have our biblical convictions in hand and we understand what it means to meet the needs of a shifting culture in a way that we are a neighbor to those who are around us. Now here at North, we're going to continue this discussion and learning about what God has to say about loving our neighbors. You know, this sermon, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was supposed to be a part of this series, but it was supposed to happen originally at the end. It was going to be the last one that we did at the end of this series. And the idea was that as we were talking about loving our neighbor, it would lead into our fall focus, which is going to be a series on what it means to love our neighbor for the sake of the gospel in our community, right? We're going to, we were going to focus on that. We still are going to focus on that series. But of course, for the reasons we've stated earlier, we've switched the parable and the order of our parables. But at the same time, we're going to continue talking about this. We're going to continue keeping this in front of us because it needs to be kept in front of us. Look, if we're going to, if we're going to look and we're going to incarnate and we're going to engage and we're going to go the distance as neighbors, it won't happen overnight. So we need to continue to discuss these things and hear from God in terms of how he's leading us forward. It's going to be a long and continuous journey. It's going to be clunky and awkward at times. And it may even cause us to sacrifice a few things. But in the end, I believe it's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you for your goodness. Um, Knowing that we don't see things the way that you see it, we trust in your wisdom to lead us forward. One of the good things that you do, Lord, and shows your goodness to us is that you communicate your words to us. You show us your heart. You show us what it means for us to love you and to follow you faithfully. And I pray that we would see that this morning, what it means to be a neighbor. It's a totally new identity. It's a new place that we come from. It's a new place that we claim as our kingdom that gives us that identity. And Lord, would you help us to be a neighbor to the world around us for the sake of Jesus? I think as we saw in this parable, Lord, we see, Lord Jesus, we see you as the ultimate good Samaritan who saw us in our time of need when we were completely helpless and unable to do anything about it. And you came to us and had compassion upon us like those who were sheep without a shepherd. That you didn't leave us there. You loved us enough to display action on our behalf, to bring us into your kingdom by your salvation work and to go to distance for our reconciliation and restoration. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that you have called us to live out, the good news of the kingdom. And so, Lord, would you give us the faith to do it? Would you help us to see past the obstacles, the loopholes, the excuses, and to move more fully in faithful following of you, Lord? You call us to pick up our cross and to follow you as a part of what that means. And so, Lord, would you guide us in that? Would you give us the faith to follow? And Lord, we do pray for our nation. We pray all across this nation as there is all kinds of different reactions. Some people are confused. Some people are hurt. Some people are celebrating. Some people are joyful. In the end, Lord, we don't know what this is going to look like, but we do believe that you are sovereign. And we pray that by all means and in any means possible, 
that you would show your goodness to those who don't know you. That in this moment, Lord, you would show your grace and your love through your church, if necessary, through miraculous means, if necessary, through your word, if necessary, whatever it may take, Lord, that you would show the good news to the world. That in this moment, that people would turn to Jesus and find him as their joy, as their source of joy. We ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. We started this morning, this room was so full of joy and excitement and happiness, and now it's a little bit more somber. I have a, I have a gift for doing that. I have a gift for... <laughs> I'm kidding. I want you to be encouraged this morning, though, as you leave. And look, it, it is all about the opportunities that we have around us all the time. Look, we just, we just sang this song. Lord, open up our eyes in wonder. We pray that you'd open up our eyes in wonderment to see the opportunities that are around us so that we would see his face and that we would be led to love those who are around us. That's simply what we're praying for. So be encouraged with that as you leave here today. Uh, we also want to encourage you, if you need prayer, we have the Custers who are our prayer partners for today, so they'll be happy to pray with you after the service. We have also have prayer request cards located on the table as you leave here this morning. If you'll fill out one of those prayer request cards, we get them to our prayer teams, our elder teams, our staff teams, and we pray over every single request that's written down on those cards uh, every week. And so if you'll drop those in the offering stands after you're done, we will get those to the right places so that we can be joining with you in prayer. <sighs> great to see all of you again this week. Now have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.